0: Gresham College presents The 19th Century Taming of the Christmas Carol from St. Earth to Truro by Jeremy Summerlee.
1: I'm going to continue from uh, last year. So, last time, if you remember, um, <laughs> we were with the shepherds watching their flocks. This is a beautiful uh, uh, drawing by, uh, in that wonderful um, presentation by Joseph Cundall um, from the 19th century. But there are, as the shepherd, watching his flock by night. Um, we saw, uh, essentially, that While Shepherds Watched was the only carol of the 18th century, or at least until uh, 1782, when Hark the Herald came along and was allowed to be used. But for full eight decades, While Shepherds Watched was the only carol you were allowed to sing in church. That doesn't mean to say that the carol tradition died, it just means that in church, While Shepherds Watched was all that you got, which goes part way to explaining why you get so many different tunes to While Shepherds Watched. We also covered the business that um, a carol, an official carol, is something that has a refrain that appears at the beginning, at the middle and at the end. In other words, it's not a refrain at all, it's a so-called burden. And then we established very quickly that actually all the Christmas carols we're talking about aren't carols, they're hymns, I think I've done quite well, It took an hour to say that last time, but I think that's more or less. I think that's more or less where we are. We also saw that um, there is a great uh, the carol tradition, like many traditions in so-called classical music, is very good at taking secular or folk tunes and using them for their. Uh, to their own ends, um, very much in the line of Martin Luther's famous comment, which, of course, he never made, why should the devil have all the best tunes? In spite of the fact that he never made it, he'd said something very like it. But the point pertains very much to carols. If you've got the carol tradition, it will take anything it can from anywhere. And so I thought we would start where we left off, uh, since it seemed to go down well, uh, with that fabulous thing of taking On Ilkley tat uh, and Attaching it to While Shepherds Watched, I think, makes the point very well that any tune will do, as long as it's a good one, you can put it to religious words. While
0: shepherds watched their by night, <laughs> by night Or seated on the ground The angel of the Lord came down But and 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 and
1: and and well, we don't want and to have fun tonight. <laughs> so we're going to deal with this rather is looking character. This is Davis Giddy. Um, who was determined that West country traditions shouldn't be lost to the 19th century, we do, as will become clear, we do owe him an enormous debt of gratitude. Giddy was born in Cornwall in St. Earth in 1769 in the early years of the reign of George III. He attended grammar school in Penzance, he went to Mathematical Academy in Bristol, and then he studied maths and astronomy at Oxford, and then he entered public service. And throughout his life, he was interested in literature, history, economics, religion and science. He was a genuine Renaissance man. He became the High Sheriff of Cornwall by the time that he was 25, and he was Deputy Lieutenant shortly afterwards. And between 1804 and 1832, he was a Cornish Member of Parliament, first for Helston and then for Bodmin for over a quarter of a century. While he was an MP, uh, he adopted his wife's surname of Gilbert. Um, this was because her family owned land and they wanted to perpetrate the name Gilbert, so he took uh, his wife's name. So the way that we will name these days is Davis Gilbert MP rather than Davis Giddy MA. And as an MP... Uh, Davis Gilbert promoted science and the arts simultaneously. He was a committed, an intensely committed public servant. He served on a huge number of committees and slept very little. He was one of those. Um, And he was also, let's give him his full and correct title, he was President of the Royal Society from 1827 to 1830. He really was a quite remarkable man. He died in 1839, right at the start of... Of Victoria's reign uh, and I think appropriately he died on Christmas Eve um, of 1839 for somebody that did so much for the carol revival it's extraordinarily apt I think that he died uh, uh, on Christmas Eve. Anyway in 1822 he published some ancient Christmas carols and this is when he was in his mid-50s. Some ancient Christmas carols with the tunes to which they were formerly sung in the west of England, collected by Davis Gilbert, FRS, FAS, etc. Uh, That tome, the front cover of that tome, doesn't quite do justice to what's inside, by which I mean sort of the reverse of what you might think. There are eight carols, and just eight carols in there. Just 69 verses appended to eight carols, but what you're looking at is the title page of nothing less than the revival of the Christmas Carol and it happened in Cornwall and it happened in the hands of this public servant. There wasn't a musician in sight when he was doing what uh, he did. Um, And here are the contents. What you will notice is that, obviously apart from whilst shepherds watch their flocks by night, which is going to be everywhere, isn't it? Apart from that, nothing really survives... I think, into today's congregational canon. But the first one, The Lord at First Did Adam Make and A Virgin Most Pure, which is number three, those do survive in today's choral repertory. If you've done any choral singing, you might have sung those two. But it's interesting to me that actually of that collection, only while shepherds watch their flocks is the one that you would necessarily recognise. And even that, as you'll discover, was not in a tune that you'll recognise. But nevertheless, this does constitute the Christmas Carol revolution. And it was Davis Gilbert MP who set that going. So um, let's first of all see and hear how the publication opens. And this is The Lord At First Did Adam Make... Um, as you can see from this, like the rest of the collection, it's just for two voices. So you've basically got a tune, which we will have here sung by the women, and you've got a bass line, which you'll have sung by the men. And all but one of the songs in this collection, of the carols in this collection, are laid out like this, a tune with a bass line. Now, we can talk about uh, the way in which these are depicted in a moment, but first of all, I just want to plant you... uh, in early 19th century Cornwall and get the sound of the way that these carols would have been heard. I'll talk about the way in which these are structured in a minute, but as you can hear, it's not quite classical (coughs) harmony. It's almost, and I say this in a very loving way, almost as if he didn't know what he was doing musically. Uh, But nevertheless, he got it from somewhere, and although it sounds a little bit, I don't know what the word is, just slightly unexemplary uh, to our ears, uh, nevertheless, we have to believe that this is the way in which things were being performed in the early 19th century when he dragged them out of the mire of uh, obscurity. Now, 1822, the year, just as an aside, 1822, the year in which uh, uh, Gilbert published uh, this collection of Christmas carols, was a bumper year. It's the annus mirabilis to me of uh, of Christmas in its entirety because while David Gilbert was doing this uh, in Cornwall, um, in the United States, a man called Professor Clement Clark Moore was telling stories to his children and the story that he told to his children was the one of Santa Claus. He essentially invented what we now know as the stories surrounding Santa Claus. So Gilbert's doing his Christmas carol thing here. In America, Clement Clark Moore, Professor Clement Clark Moore, uh, is inventing Santa Claus for his children. What's interesting is that uh, Davis Gilbert was happy for everybody to know what he was doing in terms of the carol revival. Clement Clark Moore kept it very, very dark... For two decades, nobody knew who had written uh, these sequence of of, of, uh, stories about Santa Claus, but that's because Clark Moore was a professor of biblical learning, and he thought, as a professor of biblical learning, it might not be so good for his career if he was known as the inventor of the myth that is Santa Claus. So, as I say, there are certain differences. But 1822 is the year, and it's all bubbling up. Uh, In fact, we're not in Victorian Britain yet. We're, We're in America, and we're not in Victorian Britain yet. So it's happening before that. Um, Indeed uh, some ancient Christmas carols was published in 1822 but it went to a second edition in 1823 so by the following year it had already gone to a second edition Davis Gilbert did an extraordinary thing when he assembled his uh, carol book because he he revived the carols of his youth and thereby he, he preserved a unique corner of 18th century folk history Now, at first glance, as you've heard already, the rhythms and harmonies of Gilbert's transcriptions, they look a bit awkward. Um, there are some, as you heard there, some irregular metrical moments where we, wanted, we think we're going to settle down into a common time, 4-4 four, four time but there's this extra sort of beat that keeps appearing. Now how much that was the folk tradition of the time and how much it was just because Gilbert didn't quite know what he's doing or his musical advisor didn't, we won't know but I think we have to assume that something like that would have happened and actually this rather four square metrical treatment that we give to Christmas carols was not how they were performed at the time in the village of Cornwall and that's what I think Gilbert does he captures the folk essence of these pieces and he preserves this music as he remembered it of of old and not uh, interestingly through a filter of musical academe which is how we tend to view it now and I think um, Gilbert's work is refreshingly rustic therefore here's one that you might might know we'll sing it to you now as I say if you Uh, If you've sung in a choir, you you might know some versions of it, but I think you should listen to it now uh, with the view of this sort of pioneering spirit that Gilbert has to try and tell the stories of how this material sounds, not as we hear it now in cathedrals and colleges and churches, uh, but actually in the villages and round the fireplace on Christmas Eve and so on and so forth. Oh. So, uh, we did uh, an accurate literal uh, performance of that in as far as we can. Of course, what we can't do is replicate what might have been the style of singing in those Cornish villages. Inevitably, we sing like a church choir, that's what we are. But, nevertheless, I think that you'll find there are some surprising notes there, and it sort of gives one. I think, an idea of how the performance practice could be developed, which I'm keen on doing, but I'm going to need help with that, not being a folkie, I, I'm very interested in folk music, but I'm a dyed-in-the-wool classical musician, obviously, but I suspect that a folk musician looking at that, well, first of all, would be very puzzled that it's written down at all. Uh, but I think certainly looking at that, it might give them some clues of the way in which they might proceed um, to interpret this repertory. Now what's good about it I think is because Davis Gilbert was not a competent musician in any way and I think that's rather good because it probably means that he did therefore bypass a lot of the things that that many people at the time later on were to do and he basically just got somebody to transcribe the music as he remembered it. It seems that he didn't do it himself and sometimes they went to manuscripts and sometimes they went around the villages and listened to people performing them. And Gilbert very thoughtfully, therefore, prefaced the publication by writing about himself in the third person. So there's a presentational objectivity when it came to uh, his presentation of these carols in this fabulous 1822 publication. The editor is desirous of preserving them in their actual forms, however distorted by false grammar or by obscurities of specimens of times now passed away, and of religious feelings superseded by others of a different caste. He is anxious also to preserve them on account of the delight they afforded him in his childhood, when the festivities of Christmas Eve were anticipated by many days of preparation and prolonged through several weeks by repetitions and remembrances. I think that's worth pointing out now, as we know Christmas starts weeks and weeks before, but... Afterwards, it pretty much wraps up as soon as you get to New Year's Day. The old school way of doing it is to wait until Christmas Eve, and then it goes on essentially to February the 2nd, which is when Christmas officially ends. And I think that's what has changed. Um, but what's lovely about this is this man is doing it. I mean, this is a busy man. This is a really busy man, but he's doing it because he absolutely loves this stuff, and he wants to recapture the magic of Christmas, as it were, his 18th century Christmas as a lad. And I think that's very touching, uh, no matter what it is that ends up on the page that we try sort of cack-handedly to sing and try and work out what it was that he heard he's doing it through utter utter love Um, now it's interesting that that one of these carols is outed as being a little bit modern he says as you can see here at the bottom apparently less ancient than the others and I think that's just on some very basic grounds uh, and I'm not sure if this, is, if this is good musicology... Well, it's not good musicology, but uh, and I think the reason he's said that it's a later one than the others is the very obvious thing, first off, that we're now in three voices rather than two. So he's saying, oh, this is a bit classy. There's a bit, bit more harmony going on. But secondly, and this is the real clincher, look at this, what we'd call points of polyphonic imitation here. Uh, Interestingly, there's, there's an error there, but let's, 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 let's ignore that. We've corrected that error, just so you know. Um, but So he's got, he's got two things. He's got three-part harmony, there's classy, and he's also got real class in these polyphonic entries. So that's enough for him at the bottom to put apparently less ancient than the others. I'm not entirely sure I follow that line of argument. I mean, as we know, there's plenty of polyphony was written before 1822, really rather a lot, actually, particularly in England, so I'm not, and also a lot of music in more than two parts. Uh, these mistakes are easy to make. There may be other reasons for him saying those things, but I suspect he's just saying... Ooh, this is—I st- I like this one, but this is sort of on the edge of the sort of thing that I can cope with uh, in terms of its musical reverence. Uh, anyway, we'll sing it to you um, now. Oh. And in doing so, in correcting that note, I realise that I'm doing that thing that I lecture about and editors interfering too much. I've done it myself. Couldn't help myself putting that note right because I think I know better. But here it is, a man that's done a lot of research, clearly got somebody to help him. And I go, well, he must have been wrong. So this is the problem that they suffer from, these pioneers. You get people coming along 200 years later and going, they didn't know what they were doing. Um... Here's another one that uh, Davis Gilbert gave us from uh, his childhood. This has an interesting annotation at the bottom, a psalm tune. So this is one of those that would have been sung on Christmas Day in church as well as presumably around uh, firesides in people's houses out on the street. Um, This is one that he included and tells us that it is a religious tune but he's including it anyway uh, in his collection because... Uh, There was still music being made in church, the Wild Shepherd's variety being the obvious one. Uh, So that's the inclusion um, here. William Sands, who is the other great Cornish uh, innovator, William Sands um, is more often than not spoken about in the same breath as Davis Gilbert. When you talk about the Carol revival, particularly in the West Country, you talk about Gilbert and you talk about Sands. And their Carol books were published within a dozen years of each other, so Sands publishes his in 1833... And they formed the vanguard of the early 19th century revival of the ballad carol. Now, Sands worked as a London solicitor for a dozen years, but his passion was music. So he was a mo- And he did actually take music lessons. So Sands was a more accomplished musician than Gilbert. But ironically, I think that really creates... Problems for his transcriptions. Gilbert had relied on transcriptions from a certain amount of written sources, a certain amount of oral tradition, and had people doing the work on his behalf. Sands engaged in some on the hoof transcription and he also tried to improve things as he went. And that can be a dangerous thing. He was a trained musician, but he wasn't a professional musician. And one that definitely connected with the Cornish roots um, that, uh, that, that Sam's um, uh, preserved for us is God Rest You Merry. Now, God Rest You Merry, we actually went through uh, this last year. But if you, uh, in, in London, if you were living in London in the early 19th century, you would have known the London tune, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. And we talked before about how you can, God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. It could be in the major or the minor, but that's your London tune. But, Sands gave us the Cornish variant, and this is important because it said that this this is the one that they would have sung in the West Country, not the London tune at all, and we'll sing it for you now.
0: Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray.
1: So, as you can hear, he knows a bit about harmony. He knows that that piece, in modern terms, is in E flat major. So, when he gets to a cadence, he just rams away at those chords. He hadn't heard of the dominant chord, clearly. I mean, it's it's, it's a lovely thing, because what he's done is he's tried to help. He's tried to write some harmony to help the whole thing along. And that does make it sound nicely antique, but I suspect what it does, it also radically sort of devolves the folk element from it by saying, oh, this piece is in E-flat major, which is probably the last thing that you should be thinking. You should be thinking modally and not harmonically. But as I say, this is the problem with Sands, is that he knew a bit. And as we know, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. It does have a lovely flavour to it, but... Uh, it's more when I look at it than when I hear it and I think, oh, well, I can see what's happened there. You've sat in front of the piano and you've done that and you've waited till, oh, yeah, we're there now. And, on it, ha- and it happens uh, at every cadence as well. I say It is very endearing, but, but for, for not great reasons. The majority of carols in Sans's collection are actually words only. They're only 18 with music, so that's a, a lovely thing. Is you've got very few in the... Uh, uh, the, the 1822 collection, you've got very few in the 1833 uh, collection. Um, now, Sands proves when he's transcribing words that actually he is very good where words are concerned. He seems to be very accurate, right down. His orthography is good, his punctuation is good and coherent. It's only when you get to the 18 musical items that he starts actually not to have an, a good editorial judgment. And that's clearly he was good with words, but not so good with music. Uh, And here's what Hugh Keat uh, says in the New Oxford Book of Carols. I mean, I'll put this up. uh, It's harsh, but I think it's it's accurate. This is Hugh Keat writing in the New Oxford Book of Carols, which, as we know, is the absolute Bible um, to the modern-day scholar. It's got everything in it. The 18 tunes are amateurishly lithographed, with major omissions and mistakes, and the musical transcriptions themselves are mostly on a low level. Some are misbarred. Several seem to be fumbling transcriptions from performance with a peculiar style of chordal vamping in the bass stave which indicates the harmonies without giving the parts. Such basses as are given are shapeless and repetitive and cannot bear comparison with the coherent and independent basses in Gilbert's book. Moreover, someone seems to have tried to bring them into conformity with the rules of classical harmony. I can't disagree with anything that Hugh Keats says there. I think it's, um, it, it, it's, it's forcefully <laughs> outspoken, but he's absolutely right. And this is the problem, is that with Gilbert you get something that seems to be genuine. Here you've got somebody that has tried to improve things along the rules of classical harmony, but not quite getting there. When Sands uh, stuck to two parts, like Gilbert did, it's pretty good. Uh, but when he tries to harmonise, it's not so good. So, what i like to do now is to compare, just so you can see, because it might, it's, it's all getting quite technical, but I hope for good reasons. So, what I've done here is I've given you uh, two settings of ostensibly the same carol. So, we've got A Virgin Most Pure. Now, you'll begin to recognise this. On the right, this is 1822, this is Gilbert. On the left, this is 1833, this is Sands. What you will hear, I hope on the right when we sing Gilbert, is something that is metrically, flows beautifully. The bass lines are independent from the tune. They make sense, certainly in folk terms they make perfect sense, and in classical terms pretty much what you'd expect. When you get over to the left with Sans, Sands has put it into the wrong metre, his harmonies are, what well, I say he just sort of finds a chord that he likes, and then he bashes away. This is I'm not I'm really don't want to in, engage in the business of sounds bashing because it it shouldn't happen. He was a great pioneer, but I do want you to hear the difference in what happens. Is that because we've only the point is because we've only got these two sources from the West Country. And if we only had one or the other, then I I wouldn't have you know, you'd just be very grateful for the one. But because we've got two, I mean they both have. Uh, I have reservations about both of them, obviously, but it is worth, I think, you hearing. So first Gilbert and then Sam. Each of them was up to, Uh, as I say, Sands comes off very badly when you do a direct comparison, and there is something beautifully flowing about Gilbert's transcription that has clearly been interfered with in the Sands. Bless him, he thought he was being uh, helpful, but you can even see it. I mean, even if you you don't have a particular facility at reading music, you can look at that left hand. You look at that bottom part and see that it's somebody just adopting claw positions on the piano and thinking that that will do. Clearly, that is not how it was heard at the time. Um, The 80 carol texts, which form the main body of Christmas carols, ancient and modern Sands' 1833 publication, I think are very well presented, um, and it's just the music that is let down. Um, I suspect what happened was that Sands decided to have a bit of a go himself, um, but uh, what he did do was he provided us with the earliest known example of the tune of the first Noel. Uh, um, Gilbert, Davis Gilbert, as it happens, provided us with something that has lasted particularly, um, whereas uh, Sands actually included uh, um, the, the tune for the first Noel, so this is something we can lock onto, Um there it is we'll sing it to you again i don't want to indulge in any more sands uh, bashing than i need to but there are there are issues with it shall we say But actually, what it does prove is that when Sands limits himself just to two voices, it's really rather good. It's only when he involves himself and tries to improve it that it gets worse. Neither Davis Gilbert nor William Sands was a professional musician, and I think that's the point. And it's inevitable that what happened next is that rather than having these Georgian amateurs, you began to have Victorian professionals. And that's where the whole game changes massively. And what happened next... ...was these two books. First of all, this is one of my prized possessions that you can tell. Hymns, Ancient and Modern, 1861. That happened. I mean, this is a glorious, glorious tome. Uh, But that is a world apart from what Gilbert and Sands were trying to preserve. Here it's now in the hands of the Victorian professional church musician. You adopt the collegiate choir stalls, you bring them down from the gallery, you put robes on them. This is the thing, the professionalisation of church music. This is, of course, a wonderful tome, but it does mean the end of those things. that. So, in a sense, they shot themselves in the foot, particularly Gilbert, by, by restoring this repertory, and then the professionals get their hands on it. And the tunes survive, of course, but things change from then on. And the other one, which is particularly relevant to us here is Christmas Carols New and Old, Bramley and Stainer, which happens in 1867 and then a second edition in uh, a second series in uh, 1871. So Hymns Ancient and Modern and Christmas Carols New and Old happen uh, in the middle of the 19th century and these are professional church musicians at work. So the the musical editor of Hymns Ancient and Modern uh, is William Henry Monk, uh, who you might or might not have heard of. He was organist at King's College London. Where you will have heard of him is that he wrote the tunes to "Abide with Me." He wrote "Even tide Abide with Me," and he wrote the, the "Bright and Beautiful" tune to "All Things Bright and Beautiful." Uh, what's slightly ironic about those two beautiful, uh, I think, uh, hymns? But but he was very critical of sentimental church music. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with "Abide with Me," but if you had to choose one word to describe it, it might well be that <laughs> we're all a little bit self unaware I think and monk no less than that but ancient and modern was his him's ancient and modern was his musical creation. The Christmas Carols New and Old is John Stainer uh, and his colleague at Magdalen College Oxford Henry Bramley. Uh, Stainer turned up to Magdalen College in 1860 and in those days Christmas Eve was indeed celebrated at Magdalen but it had only been done so for about 20 years. Uh, And it involved 150 people in its college hall. And later, later on, what happened is that they instituted uh, a a, a party atmosphere whereby the choristers would sit down at high table and be served by the fellows. And this was actually a, um, uh, this is a remembrance of the ancient tradition, which you may be aware of, of the Lord of Misrule. Now, the Lord of Misrule, a notion uh, that dated back to the Roman festival of Saturnalia, uh, but it was actually abolished during the reign of Elizabeth I, but it was later resurrected in some quarters. So this was the kind of thing that was going on uh, in Magdalen College when Stainer turned up. So the point is that there was Christmas in Magdalen when he turned up. Uh, and also things replicating the Feast of Fools, um, which you may be aware of, and the Feast of the Holy Innocents, all these, uh, all these old traditions, these medieval traditions, the Feast of the Ass which you might be aware of, where during this the, ass is, the an ass is tethered to the altar during mass, and uh, old uh, old leather uh, or sausages were burnt instead of incense, and when people are meant to say amen they go yee, or and so on. This is all these, the, this the feast of the ass. All these things had started to emerge um, at Magdalen uh, in in the 1860s, and this was the atmosphere in which Stainer. up Now, again, I'm not going to do another uh, character and assassination of a a wonderful musician, but Stainer turns up and finds that. um, It's quite easy to see why he and another fellow indulge in what they do, which is essentially cleaning up, before it gets out of hand, cleaning up the business of Christmas and providing this wonderful two series of uh, uh, Christmas carols, new and old. Um, Stainer was... uh, director of music there, not for a huge amount of time, but during that time he managed to create uh, this this Christmas carol collection. The first first series was published in 1867. Mostly you won't find that in the literature, but it is actually 1867. It's mostly equated to something else, um, but it's 1867. And it contains eight traditional carols and 12 new ones. And what I like most about it uh, is that the eight traditional ones are the ones that we now know, you won't know any of the twelve new ones, which is, I mean, I, I suppose that's that was ever thus. So uh Stegel, Lv, Oosley, Dykes, Barnby, Maria Tiderman, there's a woman in there, excellent. Arthur Brown and Stainer himself, none of their carols survived. But God rest you, Mary, the first Noel and Greensleeves set to Christmas words do extremely well. We still know those, but none, interestingly, none of the so the Christmas carols new and old. It was the old bit that people wanted. But they persisted at the second series, they persisted. Uh, and they, uh, uh, 12, uh, 10 of the 22 carols uh, were traditional ones, and the others were all new. But you find that the Holly and the Ivy survives, the Wassail song, uh, whereas the efforts of Smart, Stegall, Oosley, Barnby, Dyke, Stainer, and Arthur Sullivan do not. None of those are well known. Uh, but the whole thing is that Christmas is now taking off in a, if there's your uh, there's your summary of, of what was going on bubbling around there, in this professionalization of the Christmas carol. And here's uh, what happened next, and I think it's uh, interesting what you see at the bottom here. The growing use of carols as open-air music on winter nights when soprano voices, either of boys or women, are not easily obtained, has suggested the issue of the above the above. I think that's interesting because again, the the, the view, and I've been uh, as bad as anybody else as purveying it, the idea that this stuff goes into the church and it doesn't leave, but actually, here we are. Here's this marketing thing for the Christmas carols, new and old, which says, oh, people are going to sing this stuff outside, so what we've done is we've done a lower voices arrangement so that you don't need the boys, you don't need the women, you can go out there and do it yourselves at midnight on Christmas Eve. Uh, But that's interesting to me. So it does mean that there is this idea still that there are carols outside and presumably therefore in the villages and not just in the towns. And this is where Cornwall, interestingly, retakes up the story. So in 1876, the Church of England creates the new Diocese of Truro. Truro is the cathedral town, uh, and that had been created out of what previously was the Archdeaconry of Cornwall, which was in Exeter Diocese. And in 1877, Edward White Benson was consecrated First Bishop of Truro. You may have heard his name and you may have heard his name because he went on to become Archbishop of Canterbury. But anyway, in 1877, Truro has a bishop. And carol singing by the church choir on Christmas Eve had been a well-established custom, although what had happened was it was generally in the nature of a carol crawl. So they went round to the larger houses of the church-going parishioners. And in 1878 in Benson's second Christmas in Truro, there was a request from certain parishioners, presumably those parishioners that didn't own the large houses, and they said, look, can we not have a proper carol service so we can all hear the choir, the church choir singing, and not just the rich people who live in the large houses? And this is how it was reported in the West Britain and Cornwall Advertiser. The choir of the cathedral will sing a number of carols in the cathedral tomorrow evening, Christmas Eve, the service commencing at 10 o'clock. We understand that this is at the wish of many of the leading parishioners and others. A like service has been instituted in other cathedrals and large towns and has been much appreciated. It is the intention of the choir to no longer continue the custom of singing carols at the residences of the members of the congregation. Now, that's just a very short paragraph, but I think in that, basically Benson's reforms become very clear. He is not having this business of singing only to the rich people. This thing is going to happen in this newly created diocese, in his cathedral. That's where it's going to be, and it's going to be for everybody. And in 1880, the 16th century parish church of St Mary's, which had been acting as Truro Cathedral for four years, was almost entirely dismantled to make way for the Gothic building that you know now. Uh, and while work got underway on the new structure, a temporary 400-seater wooden building was erected. So that's an important thing, is that what's about to happen next, which is the festival service for Christmas Eve, Nine Lessons with Carols, as Benson called it, that happens in a wooden shed. Not in the glorious building that you now know, a Cathedral, and not in the glorious St Mary's that you knew before that, but in a large wooden shed. And I think the vision that made that possible is utterly extraordinary. Bishop Benson loved Cornwall and he loved the Celtic culture. His son uh, wrote about it like this My father enjoyed himself to the full, visibly and audibly. He exulted in the poetry, the romance, the old, remote, mysterious traditions of Cornwall. He loved the eager, affectionate people, their pretty talk and ways, their quick religious feeling, their local and personal pride. He responded to that and the other thing that he noticed was that actually in Cornwall non-conformism was the way forward. His son wrote about his father. He always recognised quite frankly that Methodism had kept religion alive in Cornwall when the church had almost lost the sacred flame. And he treated nonconformity as an enthusiastic friend. Essentially what it is, is the Methodists are singing hymns with gusto. And Benson loved that and thought we can use that. What we need is a service in which you get everybody involved and they'll probably join in. And that's exactly what happened next. Nine lessons with carols. Note the preposition. As we know, it's nine nine lessons and carols. But then it was nine lessons with carols. Festal service for Christmas Eve. All the congregation are requested to stand during the reading of the lesson from the Gospel of St. John and the Magnificat. And so, in Truro, in 1880, by the light of gas lamps, the very first service of nine lessons and carols began. Except it didn't, that's absolutely not how it started. <laughs> It starts like this, interestingly. It starts with the Lord's Prayer. And then you have the responses, the responses that you'd hear at the beginning of Evensong. Genesis 3, 8 16, read by a senior chorister. This is what Benson did. He was the one that invented the idea of starting with the lowly. And building, of course, all the way up to him as bishop. So it's kind of self serving in one way, but it's also a very beautiful way of doing it. And actually, the way, the musically, the way, uh, the service opened um, was with this, which I'll sing to you. I wonder if I've got yes, and you should be able to hear instantly what's happened. Instantly you can hear, that's now been, it's professional church work. That's John Stainer at his best, wonderful church-like harmonies. But in only a few decades, it's a million miles away from what happened in Cornwall originally. And that's why I call this the taming of the... There's nothing wrong with John Stainer's harmonies at all. He was a great, great musician, and very much a 19th-century hero of mine. But what's happened there is, well... It's made something very different out of what presumably had been happening in the villages. It's, it's sad in a way. But at least this uh, and its service managed to preserve carols like that. And the end of the service ends with a magnificat. So this is essentially, its starting point you can see is evensong. They've kept the responses at the beginning. They've kept the Magnificat. It's becoming, funnily enough, almost like Vespers, like Roman Catholic Vespers as well. So there are vestiges of that. And then you have your nine lessons with carols and then ends uh, with a blessing. Now, the 1880 service packed out. It was packed in Truro. Not difficult because it was a smaller uh, environment they'd been used to. It was this wooden shed. Um, and perhaps most gratifyingly for, for the bishop, for Benson, as he quotes, many nonconformists as well as churchgoers were present. So his idea worked. Getting, getting the Methodists into his church to sing hymns, it worked. And he repeated the experiment uh, a year later, and then the Order of Service was published. It was actually published as a book. And just to nip on, because... Um, We're close to the end now, but to see what happened next, I mean, this is the bit that you'll uh, know about to a certain extent, is that by the time we get to 1918, this has travelled to King's College, Cambridge. The bit of the story I still can't get to grips with, and I'm working on it practically daily at the moment, is what was the specific link that took it from Truro, where it's still performed to this day, the Nine Lessons with Carols, what was it that took it from Truro, Specifically to King's College, Cambridge. Anyway, there is the, uh, there it is, um, and it references Archbishop Benson. Tells you that it was his idea, and then it puts it very much into the Cambridge, uh, the King's College Cambridge Foundation. The service, uh, which was designed by. Eric Milner White, who was the dean at the time, he'd been an undergraduate there, then he was chaplain, he went off to fight in the First World War, he was decorated, he came back in 1918, and the whole service, this was not an even song in a sense, this was a service that was all about remembering the dead. 199 members of college, of King's College Cambridge, were taken in the First World War, 199 from that college. And that's what it's about. It's a memorial for the people that were lost. And as you'll know, this bidding prayer, which is about the same length as the Gettysburg Address. I mean, that's the lesson for us all, isn't it? You want to say something absolutely mind-bendingly important, do it in that many words. Um, But it's this, the bit that we know. The last paragraph. Upon another shore and in a greater light. A beautiful bit of writing, and it was that vehicle um, that... uh, that Milner White wanted to uh, wanted to perpetrate so the service starts in candlelight the boys and the men as they do now they come from different sides of the chapel and they end up in the nave by candlelight and the service begins except it didn't (laughs) it begins with this up good Christian folk and listen. The so-called Invitatory Carol, which I think is not used as much as it should, but definitely Milner White thought that this is what he wanted in pole position for his memorial service. Ding dong, ding, ding a
0: dong a ding. Ding dong, ding dong, ding a dong, ding. A good Christian folk that listen have a many church bells ring, and from steeple beat good people.
1: It is a beautiful and very uplifting, optimistic start uh, to this service that Eric Milner White um, created. Then, and only then, followed once in Royal, which I think gives a very different feeling to the start of the service, very different indeed. And in those days, Once in Royal started like this. beautiful beautiful harmonisation but different to the way in which it starts now these days we're used to it starting in a slightly different way and it's, it's a small sort of technical adjustment but I think it makes all the difference these days rather than having that wide spacing you've just had it starts right in the middle with all with the low voices high up and the high voices low down and they open gradually like a flower this is what we're used to now a very different effect. It's something that sort of grows open like that flower. And this is attributed, that business of starting like that, is attributed to Daddy Man, so-called. He was the man that served in Kings as their director of music before Boris Ord, so he took them into the 20th century. I don't think he took them into the 20th century very far, but he did take them into the 20th century. But it's man that is... uh, Everybody ascribes that beautiful flower-like opening to man. And then, quite recently... I found this. This is the same man, Gauntlet, but this is in 1849. 1849, so a long time before anybody. And there it is. Starting with that flower opening. For some reason, when Gauntlet got his harmonisation to hymns ancient and modern, he adopted that, well, I suppose, because he was adopting this rather congregational view of it, and it fits, and you can hear it starting on the organ. It's a powerful start. But before that... Some 15 years before Hymns Ancient and Modern, he'd actually had the idea of the opening third. It's funny, Kings is always attributing various things to various people about the carol service, but actually, this, 1849 and Gauntlet, seems to be uh, where he, ha- how he wanted it to start. It's slightly different from the one we know now, but it's still worth, worth singing to you.
0: One sing, Royal David's-
1: It actually has almost close harmony singing about it, it's beautiful, but that opening, that that flower-like opening, was definitely gauntlet. And it was only in 1919, the year after the service started, that actually once in Royal got into pole position. At that point, Milner White heard the service and thought, hmm, it's a great carol, the... Uh, up good Christian folk is a great carol but actually we wanted to start in darkness with that procession and since 1919 that's how it's been done ever since and that's the way I'd like to finish it not least finally to give Ellie the chance (laughs) to do what we never allow her to do in St Luke's